Hey, sup listeners, Amanda Duberman here. It's a big week for billionaire buffoons in media. The series finale of Succession marked the end of an era for the bumbling Roy siblings. And meanwhile, Vice Media declared bankruptcy this week, signaling yet another signpost in the downfall of traditional news media. In honor of these headlines, The Betches Up is proud to share an episode of Morning Announcements Extra Extra entitled The Billionaires Who Are Killing Journalism. Listen along as our own Sammy Sage takes us on a tour of the many publishing billionaires in power today and the media properties they wield to further their own agendas. From traditional publications like the New York Times and Washington Post to new digital behemoths like Facebook and Google, Sammy tells us why media consolidation among the elites poses a huge threat to journalism as we know it. Hello, and welcome to Extra Extra, your premium companion to the Morning Announcements podcast. I'm your host, Sammy Sage. Welcome, extras. Maybe that's what we're going with this week. Whatever we're calling ourselves, thank you for being here. Today, we have what I think is a really interesting episode. It is something that is sort of on my mind in some capacity all the time, especially as someone who works in media, and that is the question of the billionaires who are killing journalism and how they're doing it. Um, it's a really interesting topic to me. Like I said, I've worked in media for several, you know, over a decade now. And obviously, Betches is not your typical, quote, news outlet. Um, we just started this up in 2015, and, you know, it was really just an Instagram account at that point. But watching the way that news is uh, put out there and consumed has always really been a very, very fascinating topic for me as someone who is really into the news and kind of works adjacent to it in my own little unique way. Um, before we get into the episode, I wanted to mention one more thing about our Geneva chat. I decided to open up the Geneva chat. I know I said it would be private for subscribers, but that would mean I have to let everyone in and invite them specifically. And I don't really know how to access every single subscriber's email. So I figure that if we open it up, we can let everyone join the channel. Maybe they'll become subscribers. Maybe they'll find that it's really, you know, we all share an interest in these particular topics. So if you if you are on Geneva, and if you're not, you can download it. It's free. It's kind of like a chic, non-annoying Discord or Slack where you can chat with people in a positive, moderated manner. So if you have Geneva, search for the Betches group chat, and you'll find the Betches up under there. And under that category, you'll find the extra, extra subscribers room. And if you can't find it or you can't figure out how to get invited, just DM me and I will help you out because that is the least I could do for you. As an original extra, the very least I can do is send you a link. Okay, so I think that's all we have to do up top. Rate, review, subscribe, enter the Geneva chat, whatever level of engagement you feel comfortable with. On to today's episode, billionaires and how they are ruining journalism. Cash rules everything around me. The concept of rich white men who want to own newspapers to feed their egos is truly nothing new. They're just more rich now than they used to be. But really, the tradition goes back as far back as Citizen Kane, which was based off the very real Hearst empire. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. Though maybe you could technically argue it goes back to the invention of the printing press. Johann Gutenberg appears to have been born into some serious generational wealth of his own, if Wikipedia is to be believed. Then we also have the modern-day examples. Jared Kushner's destruction of the already financially failing but still beloved New York Observer after he purchased it as a graduation gift at age 25. Who doesn't? And of course, the fictional Nate Archibald attempting to run the New York Spectator to impress his dad. That's actually what I want to talk to you about. 
I want to publish it in The Spectator. Do you, do you know what it's about? Serialized character studies of people on the Upper East Side. Yeah, using real names. I get it. All right, but I really need it after I gave up my Who is Gossip Girl expose. In that clip, you could hear Nate personally standing up the fourth estate. On some level, I could maybe argue that all of these people were trying to impress their dads, but that is a podcast for Freud. So using the newspaper as a flex is nothing new, but it is more problematic than ever now that we're having some, shall we call them, democracy problems. Also, wealthy people today are way more wealthy than in past generations, and therefore they have way more leverage. They also have way more control over the competition. It is impossible for competitors to come into the journalism or publishing space and be able to challenge any seriously wealthy person in business or in a legal situation, unless they are, of course, financially well-matched. The influence of wealth in journalism goes way beyond petty shit, like Jared Kushner personally ordering the deletion of stories from The Observer about his friends, per reporting from when he was in charge there. Clearly, Jared had not been under the tutelage of his future father-in-law at the time, because what people with money and something to hide can do to journalism makes the things that Jared was doing look like as amateur as Ivanka at the G7. I'm going to warm this up with two stories, one of which you probably already know the gist of. And that is the Peter Thiel Hulk Hogan story that closed Gawker down. Here's a quick refresher of that. As a founder of PayPal and Palantir, which by the way is where Hope Hicks went to work after she left the White House, Peter Thiel is worth a few billion dollars. Not that many compared to Elon, but still a lot. Before he became a major funder of MAGA candidates, which he is now, specifically J.D. Vance, he was also an early Facebook investor and on their board. So the point is, he has been around for a while. And in 2007, he was outed by the website Gawker as gay. Following that, he made it his mission to wage a years-long war against Gawker. And knowing that they had also published similar violations of privacy against other people who didn't have as many resources as he did, he then played a long game. Almost 10 years later, which clearly speaks to his appetite for revenge, in 2016, he personally bankrolled $10 million of a lawsuit for the wrestler Hulk Hogan so that he could sue Gawker after they published a sex tape of his. Partly using Peter Thiel's money, he sued Gawker for $140 million and won. And that was the end of Gawker. Just a quick side note before we move on to story number two. Peter Thiel was a pledged delegate for Trump in 2016. He has been a champion for free speech and media and journalism, but has the stance that the invasion of privacy is not legitimate journalism. Unfortunately, this is not the space for those ethical questions because we have another story to get to. The story of the Aspen Times is much more under the radar, but it actually has some international relevance, and it's pretty recent. The story is about a man named Vladislav Doronin and his war against the Aspen Times, which has been in circulation since 1881. That is just five years after Colorado became a state. And the Aspen Times is a rare example of a publication that was able to remain independently owned and profitable for quite a long time. That is until they were bought by a bigger publisher last year and then made an enemy out of Vladislav Doronin. As his name might suggest, he is a Russian-born businessman with unsurprisingly some questionable dealings, which are basically at the center of the story. But he is also Naomi Campbell's ex and an owner of Amman Hotels, where one night's stay costs more than getting a full college education in the 80s. Here's the background, which involves a few events that happened over the past year or two. Like I just referenced, the Aspen Times was purchased by Ogden Newspapers in November 2021. 
which was the first time they had ever been managed by a bigger financial entity, and they were beholden to the desires of a new publisher. Put that knowledge on hold for just a second. In a separate and unrelated transaction in March of 2022, a few months ago, this story's villain, Vladislav Doronin, purchased a giant piece of what could be considered some of the best land in Aspen. It cost over $75 million. I also need to add that he purchased this land from an entity owned by former Olympic ski racer Jeff Gorsuch, who is, interestingly, a cousin of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. Now, I know this doesn't sound completely relevant to the journalism thing, but bear with me. Gorsuch, the cousin, not Neil, had only owned that land for a short time, and in that very short time, against the wishes of a lot of the town, he had gotten permission to build a resort on that property. They won approval for that extremely narrowly by only 26 votes, like out of the whole town of Aspen, which is small, but not that small. So Gorsuch manages to annoy half the town. You know, we have the whole classic upstairs-downstairs fight that is deeply emblematic of Aspen. But then he goes and makes it worse. He flips this piece of land that he just fought over to Vladislav Doronin at a state markup. To make the situation worse, though, this happened right after Putin had invaded Ukraine and the U.S. imposed sanctions, which clearly made the whole transaction significantly more messy and questionable. And naturally, that was a very interesting story to the people working at the Aspen Times. So they started writing about it, as one does when someone buys $76 million worth of property in your town. So without going into every detail, Doronin spent the next several months since March using his influence over the Times' new publisher, Ogden, who are lesser billionaires than he, to get the paper to stop writing about him. He would haggle and sick lawyers on the company every time they mentioned him, including initiating a dispute over changing the phrase Russian oligarch to Russian billionaire as a description of him. Despite the fact that oligarch is not inherently a libelous description, he also took major issue with an opinion piece that suggested he may be a confidant to Putin. And sure, maybe he's not, but I can't think of many people who are allowed to make millions of dollars in Russia unless Putin is a fan of theirs, at the very least. So the paper was writing about him for about a month after the transaction, and in April, Doronin filed a defamation suit against the Times, and the publisher, Ogden, strictly forbade the paper from then on from writing about Doronin or the lawsuit at all. If they did want to write about him, they had to get approval from Ogden directly, which never happened. And when they were trying to report on relevant information, including the fact that Doronin transferred a third of his ownership in his Moscow-based businesses to his mother just one day after filing the defamation suit, which, fine, everyone should give their mom gifts. This is obviously relevant because he was suing the paper for defamation, specifically for saying that he had not ended his business dealings in Russia. So the Times settled the suit shortly after. But then the very next day, Jeff Gorsuch's lawyer sent the paper a letter threatening a defamation suit for the paper's coverage. Ultimately, nothing came of this, but even after the settlement, editors continued to be restricted from writing about not just Doronin, but any figure that Ogden was worried could sue them. And by the way, the family that owns Ogden is also worth over a billion dollars, but just not as many billions as Doronin. They also own 50 publications. And while the Aspen Times was not sued into oblivion, like Gawker, the story demonstrates what happens when money talks, even if a paper can keep on publishing. And in some ways, that could actually be more dangerous because as consumers, we can't see the stories that are getting spiked by hush money or legal threats. So I included these stories to show just how much sheer power is held by certain individuals to influence the press however their whims dictate, no matter how important it is. 
But in reality, the problem goes way beyond personal vendettas. The free press is supposed to be a key feature of democracy, and when it is no longer really free, that's when there are major consequences. I'm warning you, Alan, things had better change around here. There will be serious consequences. Legal consequences. Got it? Got it. So just like billionaires can squash stories that hurt their widow fifis, they also have the ability to squash significant stories that are in the public interest, no matter how important they are, as long as it is not in their interest. I know time has no meaning anymore, but if you can remember a few years ago, the owner of American Media, David Pecker, and his technique of buying or scooping stories expressly for the purpose of killing them as favors to his friends. The most salient example of this, and when this really came to light, were the stories about the National Enquirer that they would get for Trump so that they could not publish them. Stormy Daniels is the famous example, but according to Michael Cohen, they use this technique all the time. The technique even has an informal name. That is Catch and Kill, which eventually became the title of Ronan Farrow's book and later his podcast about his attempts to break the Harvey Weinstein story. Catch and Kill is really a industry-wide tradition, you could say. Here's how he describes the way this worked on Late Night with Stephen Colbert. Uh, I use the term journalism very loosely. A lot of outlets, including the National Enquirer, used to acquire uh, the rights to a story in order to not publish it, but bury it at the behest of a powerful person. That's so a protective buy, where you just take it and you just you That's make right. it go away. And it is used in this plot, both literally in the sense that I'm following a trail of clues from the National Enquirer mm-hmm. working to smear victims of Harvey Weinstein and bury stories for him, all the way up to the top, if you will, to the collaboration between President Trump and the National Enquirer. And it's also used figuratively, Stephen, because it is about these broader patterns in our profession, in the media world, that have kept these stories buried. While we're discussing the predator trifecta, though, there is, of course, the saga of trying to report on Jeffrey Epstein. Despite having the story, both ABC News and Vanity Fair would not publish it. Yet another case of the editor Graydon Carter and journalist Vicki Ward having conflicting accounts of why. But without getting into those particulars, I think we all know by now that the reporting most likely would have stood. Tonight, law enforcement officials say Epstein is expected to be charged with two federal counts related to sex trafficking. His alleged crimes taking place from 2002 to 2005 against dozens of underage girls at his New York City and Palm Beach, Florida homes. As if there weren't enough obstacles to getting stories out against the interests of publishers and the subjects of their reporting, we have to talk about the profit motive and how it works on both publications and individual journalists. We first have to talk about paywalls. I know it feels like paywalls are everywhere these days, and that is because they are. The percentage of publications that utilize paywalls increased by 16% between 2017 and 2019, and even more in 2021. But the danger isn't only that it's expensive for us as readers, and that inflation is too damn high. But what we're presented with as alternatives when journalism isn't accessible, what fills that space is a bunch of shitty free propaganda that Facebook unwittingly fed you but we will get to Facebook later. Here's a clip of authoritarian scholar Sarah Kenzier explaining the harm that the proliferation of paywalls has done. Back in 2016, 2017, you know, the early parts of the Trump era, I was able to put together all of the information uh, that was in my book, Hiding in Plain Sight, because it was, in fact, hiding in plain sight. It was not paywalled. It was not particularly uh, difficult to find. I mean, it took time and effort, but it was uh, there, and it was certainly affordable. Um, in like about the spring of 2021, you know, almost every mainstream site, every local news site began to erect a paywall. And it's a paywall that 
seems designed to keep people out, you know, because I do think people would pay for the news just as they used to pay for print newspapers back in the day. They'd pay like a dollar. They would maybe pay like 50 cents for one article. They're not going to pay like a $50, $100 year long subscription for some paper. They, you know, they're probably never going to read again. Um, and I understand why, especially the, the smaller local sites, you know, they need to do something to make money or they're going to go under. You know, this problem has been with us for a long time. So I do have sympathy in that respect. But what has happened is that, you know, information now just floats around the internet in the forms of headlines, in the forms of screenshotted paragraphs, in the forms of individual sentences, you know, decontextualized, no, no date, no author, uh, sometimes no idea where it is. And meanwhile, as that's happening, as you're getting partial truths uh, from the paywalled world, disinformation is free. You know, uh, Fox News is free. Like Facebook memes are free. Uh, next door posts are free. And so people during a time of enormous trauma and crisis, you know, not just, uh, you know, the rise of autocracy threats in the Capitol, but a pandemic are trying to get information about all of these, um, you know, atrocious happenings from very unreliable places because they simply cannot afford to get them elsewhere. And that is terrible for democracy. It is terrible for uh, society. Um, you know, but I think it kind of shows a world of journalism in which the journalists are writing much more for each other and for their corporations than they are to inform the public. On that note of harm to the public interest, a less obvious example of the profit motive that few of us are personally confronted with every day is the space of book deals for journalists. I'm talking about this phenomenon of journalists sitting on dangerous stories, like Bob Woodward knowing that COVID was contagious in February 2020, which would have been helpful for all of us, and Maggie Haberman, her general existence. And the reason that they sit on these scoops is because they can cash out in massive book deals, up to a million dollars or more in some cases. And the publishing houses require that the scoops are exclusive to the books, so they can't talk about them before. But the other problem is that this is where the real payday is as a journalist, to write a book. And journalism is a decreasingly lucrative career in general, which is open to mainly already very wealthy people who live on the coasts. Here's more from Sarah Kenzier on how publishers feed into this corruption. And then the other thing that's happening is the world of book publishing basically being used, I think, as a tacit... Um, NDA. You know, NDAs are how Trump and just, you know, kind of high power mafia networks in general uh, function to silence uh, witnesses or victims of their crimes. You know, they, they sign a document, they get a payout and so on. The book publishing industry is essentially functioning that way because people know that they can work with the Trump camp. They can witness uh, a multitude of horrific things, and as long as they write a narrative of it that emphasizes scandal over crime, that doesn't delve deep, that doesn't give history, that doesn't give context, it's just sort of like a, you know, tabloidy first-person account, like my time working with, uh, you know, Melania or whatnot, um, that they will get rewarded, that it is lucrative, that they will get a book deal. And this is also, this mentality is transferred not just from people who work uh, within his campaign or administration, but into people, um, you know, working for newspapers, where despite the paywall, they don't seem to see uh, the point of articles as getting people to read them. You know, it's just they're putting out filler and then waiting for the day the book arrives that tells you the news of a year, a year and a half ago. And 
That is incredibly uh, damaging to democracy and unbelievably beneficial to not only um, elite criminals, but to the failures uh, in the DOJ and the FBI and other institutions who refuse to act and who bank on inertia and who bank on us forgetting what happened in real time and lacking a sense of urgency. You won't be surprised to learn. There are five big publishing houses in the U.S., and a bunch of them are owned by even bigger media conglomerates who also dominate broadcast and print news. We're going to get to you all of this in a second. We all know your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. Sometimes what starts as a bad hair day quickly turns into a bad everything else day. I'd never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair and skin, yes, but beyond that too. Since I started using pros, I've noticed consistently healthy hair. Even with all I put it through with the heat tools and the hairsprays to get this pompadour sky high, it smells great, it looks fancy on the shelf, and I like that it has my name right on it. This formula is made for V. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. And Pros isn't just better for you, it's better for the planet. They're a certified B cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. They even have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and adjusts my formula to keep up with the seasons and changes in my life. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription at pros.com slash feverdream. So get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash feverdream. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash feverdream. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. Whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of the things I like to buy on Etsy have little dachshunds on them or are four dachshunds. Dottie's got a whole litany of new sweaters and harnesses and all kinds of fun stuff that we get lots of compliments on when we're out on walks. A gifting moment is always just around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This brings us to the final trend we have to talk about before we get to talking shit about the billionaires. We need to talk about the corporations sorry, the people, through which they conduct their business of enriching themselves at the expense of the public. Let's talk media consolidation. Here's where we have to discuss the fact that every company is shadily owned by the same, like, five other companies and ten people total. That is obviously not an exact number. I am just trying to illustrate a point. So media is consolidated very tightly. The people who own the bigger networks, like ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN, are also owned by the same conglomerates that dominate cultural entertainment generally, like Disney, Comcast, Paramount, when it merged with Viacom, also huge, and Time Warner. So those companies own 
A million other companies. For example, Disney owns ABC, Marvel, Lucasfilms, Fox Studios Australia, because I need to point out that they like to buy and sell from each other. They also own ESPN, Hulu, America's Biggest Amusement Parks, obviously Disney, while Comcast owns DreamWorks, Telemundo, and UK media conglomerate Sky Group, which is also massive. Meanwhile, Paramount owns Nickelodeon, BET, Comedy Central, VH1, and Showtime. And they are not afraid to keep buying each other up. They will not stop, in fact, until someone tells them to, like the DOJ. For example, in 2014, Comcast tried to purchase Time Warner, but that ended up falling apart because the DOJ was going to challenge it and say that they were a monopoly. My point, and I know that this is just kind of confusing and I'm just rattling off a bunch of companies, is that nothing can really remain independent. Companies are ultimately driven by shareholder profits, since these are largely public companies. They can't let their value go down, so they engage in financial engineering, buying and selling of other companies and merging into each other. The public company issue is sort of an externality of all media being driven by the stock market, and the way that they're governed legally will always drive profit and growth, because that is what they need to do at any cost. That's what their charter says. That comes even at the expense of innovation and legitimate production. And ultimately, it manifests in people making content for ratings, trading companies between each other as financial engineering to create value, killing off more expensive forms of journalism in favor of clickbait and shallow reporting, and putting up paywalls. And like I said, I would get back to the issue of publishers, because they're also part of this. HarperCollins and Houghton Mifflin are owned by News Corp. Penguin and Random House have merged, and now they're owned by a German media conglomerate. When they tried to purchase Simon & Schuster because no one can merge enough, they ended up getting blocked by the DOJ on that deal. Simon & Schuster is still owned by Paramount Global, and they are the publishing arm of CBS. Hachette is currently owned by a French publisher, but they were sold to them by none other than Time Warner. Now, remembering all of those interactions between companies is not really important, but pretty much the point is that almost every form of content consumption, minus batches, of course, is controlled by a giant company or by a ruthless billionaire who probably looks like they have not been touched by sunlight since Windows 95. Now we are on to the main course, the billionaires. Before we get into these specific blessed individuals. I want to talk about the difference between the owner of a publication or an outlet and the owner of a platform. While a publication owner might have a more dominant impact in how they can choose what stories are or aren't covered, what departments are or aren't invested in, the owner of a platform has an even more powerful role in that they can choose what information, whether it is published, will surface or if it will be suppressed. So even if something is published, Because of the way we consume news via platforms these days, they now have even more power to drive the conversations, even at the behest of the outlet owners. So let's talk about the OGs, print publishers and broadcast news. In terms of prestige, the New York Times and the Washington Post are historically considered the gold standard for journalism. As we all know, WAPO is now owned by Jeff Bezos, which speaks for itself. The New York Times, though, has historically been a family-owned business, and while they have committed that they won't sell the paper to a billionaire, the commitment obviously means that they need to bring in more revenue on their own. Enter the New York Times paywall in 2011. Part of the issue is that investigative journalism is fucking expensive, especially serious long-term investigations which require intensive labor on the part of the journalists, and they don't really bring in much money because of how long they take. 
But also, the ability to defend your claims in a legal sense brings on its own cascade of costs, like you saw in the Gawker situation, which is why it kind of does make sense that publications turn to individuals who have essentially endless funds so that they can invest in keeping their publications afloat. So now we're in a situation where not only are the big players like Bezos and Zuckerberg involved, but you also have your lower tier billionaires dabbling in journalism as well, like the Ogden family and the Aspen Times and their 50 other publications. You also have Laureen Powell Jobs, who bought a majority stake in The Atlantic in 2017. Then there's the chief executive of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, who bought Time Magazine in 2018. And Microsoft founder Bill Gates, who has spent tens of millions of dollars through his foundation to directly fund journalism at outlets like NPR, which is noble and amazing. But it should be noted that it is still being funded by a billionaire. And you know what they say, money talks, wealth propagandizes. When it comes to financial news, Bloomberg is the first name in financial news, if not the Wall Street Journal, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. So when it comes to Bloomberg's coverage of financial news, it should be fairly obvious how those conflicts might arise when you have an owner who is evidently not afraid to throw money at achieving whatever result he wants, like the time he spent over $1 billion on a 100-day presidential campaign to only win 55 delegates, which is about $18 million per delegate. You know, an incredibly sound financial decision, which is why we should always trust billionaires when they give us financial advice. The year I turned 26 as the head of my own brokerage firm, I made $49 million, which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. Okay, I also want to call out two publications here. Those are Politico and CNN. And I'm picking those two because over the past year, they've somewhat come to represent the disturbing trend of moneyed interests having more direct influence over news content than ever. Politico was recently bought by the company Axel Springer, which has also invested in Insider, Morning Brew, and owns minority stakes in Now This and Thrillist. Axel Springer is the largest publisher in Europe and is owned by a man named Matthias Dilfner. You may recognize him from Elon Musk's text messages. He says that his aspiration is to be the largest publisher in democracies worldwide, which is giving a little bit of state-run media as an aspiration, but cool. As far as billionaires go, it appears that there are worse guys than him out there, but that is not saying much. Unsurprising for a white male billionaire, one of his favorite things to rail against is cancel culture and wokeness. He also sent an email to his executives on the day of the 2020 election, suggesting that they gather to pray that Trump wins. He then denied sending this email, and when confronted with it, he said he was just kidding. So not a great look for the supposed arbiter of truth. Also, one of his sons works as the chief of staff for Peter Thiel, though he claims that he only met him a few times and they are not friends. Whatever, I will be on the lookout for that friendship, you can believe me. But the reason I say he is not necessarily the absolute worst is that he personally made the decision to allow the first draft of the Dobbs opinion from the Supreme Court to be published by Politico after they obtained it. It's a low standard, but I think it is important to see these people as their whole selves, decent decisions and all. Now we have to talk about CNN, which is becoming kind of a whole thing, and especially a topic of much negative fodder for people who work in media. CNN is owned by Warner, and until very recently, was run by executive Jeff Zucker. As recently as last month, staff at CNN have been given the directive to take a more middle-of-the-road approach to coverage, which in reality, according to staffers, really means that CNN wants to exercise control over what is published and what perspective is shared. And they want a more centrist one, regardless of whether what they're saying is true. 
Since this directive, CNN has been bleeding talent, with journalist John Harwood resigning from the company immediately, shortly after this directive came out. And he went off with a bang after he called Trump a demagogue on air. The point he made in that political speech about a threat to democracy is true. Now, that's something that's not easy for us as journalists to say. We're brought up to believe there's two uh, different political parties with different uh, points of view, and we don't take sides in honest disagreements between them. But that's not what we're talking about. These are not honest disagreements. The Republican Party right now is led by a dishonest demagogue. Many, many Republicans are rallying behind his lies about the 2020 election and other things as well. And a significant portion or a uh, sufficient portion uh, of the constituency that they're leading attacked the Capitol on January 6th violently. But the truth is, if you've been watching Jeff Zucker's motives for a while, he actually has been one of Trump's biggest enablers. Zucker was the individual who put The Apprentice on air when he took over NBC Entertainment in 2000. Throwback. But even as recently as 2015, there are leaked calls with him and Michael Cohen showing that he wanted to do a weekly show with Trump. Even after Trump had said some really horrible shit about Mexicans and disabled people and everything else that Trump has ever said. Zucker was forced to step down in early 2022 after it was discovered that he was having an unreported affair with another executive, which was kind of randomly discovered as a casualty of the network's own investigation into how Chris Cuomo helped his brother cover up his own sexual assault allegations. So it's like its own little baby spiderweb of corruption. On that note, the belief among former staff is that Zucker knew about Matt Lauer's assault allegations when he was at NBC, and he didn't do much about it, but you can draw your own conclusions about that. So while Zucker may be out at CNN, the new direction of CNN is now set, without most of its viewers even realizing what the new directive of the network is or that any changes have even gone on at all. So tell your friends and your parents and everyone you know. Okay, now we have to talk about right-wing media. We're going to get to the social media and tech platforms of it all, the ones that are ruining our lives. But first we have to go into the propaganda situation that is happening in right-wing media. We all know Fox News. I'm not really going to spend much time there, but let's talk about its parent company, News Corp, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch. People come to us because we don't sell them on anything. No packet of fucking bleeding heart, United Nations, Volvo, gender bender, horseshit. Uh, yeah, sure, who doesn't? Roman, you're a moron. News Corp is one of the biggest media conglomerates out there, and their reach is not just the U.S. It is basically every English-speaking country. But honestly, there is nothing that I'm going to tell you that you don't know, unless maybe we want to do a whole Fox News deep dive episode. But what we do have to talk about is Sinclair Broadcasting, the real insidious problem in right-wing news. Sinclair Media Group is the largest broadcast company in the country, despite the fact that many people have never even heard of them. Over the past several years, they've been buying up local news stations across the country. And as Sinclair purchased more and more local news stations, it began running more national and less actually local news, with a far-right tilt and frequent ads talking about the fake news. Out of their 193 local news stations in 2018, each one had to run nine conservative pro-Trump news segments a week called Bottom Line with Boris. It was hosted by Boris Epstein, a man who I am not entirely sure how to describe, aside from being a Russian, quote, businessman, as well as an advisor to Trump, and now the chief commentator on Sinclair, another man who is worthy of his own deep dive. 
So after 2018, Sinclair then bought another 42 stations and fully maxed out their viewer reach that a conglomerate its size is allowed to have under federal regulations. Ultimately, they were reaching 72% of households with TVs through their local news channels, the ones that are affiliated with ABC, NBC, CBX, and Fox. This means that a lot of people probably don't even realize that they're watching Sinclair Broadcasting. Taken at face value, though, you might think, well, if they can afford to do it, what can stop them? Point taken, but I'm not a robber baron. And regardless, FCC guidelines actually bar companies from owning more than one commercial station per media market. But here's what Sinclair did to get around that. Sinclair is a family-owned company, and they found a loophole. They had their own mother create a shell company and buy the stations that they couldn't. She then leased them the rights through the loophole known as the Local Marketing Agreement. The FCC fined the Sinclair brothers, but they then continued to let them use the loophole, which I'm glad everyone cares so much about enforcing. Here's what she said to me. To finish out this episode, we have to talk about the figurative fuel that's thrown on the fire of these questionable publishing practices, and that is social media. We have to first get Twitter and its impending overlord out of the way. As of right now, Elon Musk doesn't own Twitter, but the prospect continues to shock and terrify. Even though Twitter does not have nearly the user base of Facebook and Google, it has a very influential user base that is often setting the whole conversation. And a few months ago, the former security chief at Twitter, Peter Zacco, blew the whistle on major security and privacy issues. He said that half of Twitter's 7,000 employees had access to all user information, including addresses, phone numbers, and even their physical location, which I need to now turn off. When he testified to Congress, he said that the company runs from fire to fire instead of addressing real concerns, including the fact that foreign agents infiltrated Twitter's employees and gained access to users' personal information, which we love. But that is really nothing compared to our grand finale, which is Google, YouTube, and Facebook. A YouTube whistleblower has spoken out about how the algorithm is intended to drive users to more extreme content, giving popularity to creators like Logan Paul but even more problematic ones than him, and bigger threats to democracy. Part of this comes down to the algorithm, and that is kind of the fact with all these platforms. Originally, the YouTube algorithm worked to maximize watch time, and therefore videos that were more extreme or spread conspiracy theories drew viewers in for a longer period of time. It has since changed the algorithm to also account for viewer satisfaction with likes and reviews, but those changes took over a decade to implement after Google obtained the company. It also uses the algorithm to suggest videos that will come up next. And since fiction outperforms reality on the site, even the changes to account for user satisfaction don't actually do much to minimize the misinformation shown. Mostly, though, Google keeps the YouTube algorithm very secretive and purposely minimizes the access to multiple negative studies done on how the platform has led to a rise in extremist content. There were honestly few legitimate results when I Googled around for this topic at all, especially considering how much it is frequently discussed on various platforms, like TikTok. And also, the ADL has studied it. And even right-wing content creators themselves acknowledge that their growth comes from pushing the most extreme narratives consistently, even if they are not necessarily true. 
Former far-right activist Tommy Robinson described to the New York Times what used to be his process. He said, quote, We would choose the most dramatic moment, or fake it and make it look more dramatic. We realized that if we wanted a future on YouTube, it had to be driven by confrontation. Every time we did that kind of thing, it would explode well beyond anything else. So even YouTubers are not immune to the profit motive. Now for our final evil genius, perhaps the most evil and maybe even genius of all, though I wouldn't want to flatter him that way, Mark Zuckerberg and Meta. We could do truly probably several episodes on the massive deficiencies of Facebook, but we're going to speak top line. According to Facebook whistleblower Francis Hagen, Facebook pursues revenue at the expense of democracy, ideological divisions, and the well-being of children. Her job at Facebook was specifically to study the algorithm, and her studies show that it amplifies misinformation and falls prey to foreign adversaries. But when they were confronted with these issues, they always choose to pursue more profit over implementing safeguards. Sounds kind of like Twitter. Maybe it's a universal issue. This has led to quite a few problems, though. From substantial evidence showing that teenage girls suffer from an increase in eating disorders and suicidal ideation after merely using Instagram, to a full-on genocide in Myanmar, and then obviously the January 6th insurrection, which was largely planned openly within Facebook groups, and then those groups were actually heavily promoted to recruit users. So the truth is that Facebook knows this, it is documented that they know it, and they simply don't care. Facebook has actually done years of research on how to minimize political divisions and minimize misinformation and conspiracy theories and violence, and yet they neglect to even follow through on their own recommendations. However, they are not afraid to look like they're doing something. Before the 2020 election, the company created a civic integrity team ooh, to put controls and limitations on some prominent groups spreading stop the seal information, but then lifted them in November after the results were called and dismantled the civic integrity team. After that, they took no actions to stop the disinformation and straight-up coup planning that was happening in their very own digital living room. And since then, they have actually rejected the request of its own oversight board to look into how their platforms assisted the organizers of the insurrection. Busy night, more breaking news. What CNN has learned from internal Facebook documents about how the company fell short in tamping down the so-called Stop the Steal movement that culminated in violence on January 6th. Facebook spokespeople, as you know, have touted their effort, but now we're learning from these documents that internally it was viewed as a different story. But let's talk about where this goes in the worst possible scenario. You have what happened in Myanmar. False information spread on Facebook through Myanmar's own government channels, and it proliferated throughout the site, which led to genocide against Rohingya people in Myanmar, as well as the exodus of 600,000 people to Bangladesh. Some of the dangerous posts in question were removed and some users were restricted, but in most cases, that was after the violence had already started. And since then, rather than taking a single form of accountability, Facebook has been removing and archiving relevant posts, which were requested by the International Court of Justice. They've been investigating. So, my extras... This brings me to the end of today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. I definitely learned a lot in the course of my research. And as always, I am more than grateful for your trust and attention in bringing these issues to light. 
If you want to talk about it, let's meet in the Geneva chat. Remember, look up the Betches group chat. If you can't find it, just DM me. It's okay. And I guess that could be it for now. Please leave me a review or a five-star review rating, all the stuff. Tell your friends. You know what to do. It's really not, you know, I don't need to tell you. You guys know. Um, But I really appreciate it. Let me know what you think. And with that, I'm Sammy Sage. And now you know what the fuck is really going on. Betches.